Well, good morning, folks. I think we'll get started here with Sunday School. Uh, now, Pastor Clint wanted me to remind you folks that there is a, a gospel partner slash baptism class happening in the Luther Hall uh, right now. I believe he's on week two of that class, uh, if any folks are interested in taking that. Uh, let me open a prayer here, and we can get started here with our, our next class in Living as a Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for yet another Lord's Day. Father, this is a, this is a mark, a sign of your uh, continued grace towards us. Father, we uh, look forward to these days, we cherish these days, and just pray now, Father, that you would attend us by your Spirit, open our eyes to behold Christ, help us even as we consider this topic of encouragement uh, this morning, and just pray that we could grow uh, in our love for Christ and our love for one another, even in Christ-likeness. Uh, for we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so as you can see, we're on class 10, and it, the topic today is encouragement. So if you're here for the past couple weeks, P Pastor Jared took the last couple classes, and he dealt with some uh, rather challenging topics, dealing with discontentment with church leadership, uh, dealing even with uh, corrective church discipline. So I get to sort of come back now, and this sort of feels like a little bit of a softball for me uh, concerning the topic of encouragement. But it is, this is a great topic, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it. So you can see the subtitle there, um, Encouragement Safeguarding Unity in Holiness. So again, the topic, uh, 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 the central theme in this class, Living as a Church, has been church unity and um, even church membership and how the two sort of work hand in hand. So safeguarding unity in holiness. Now, as soon as I talk about the, this talk of encouragement, a number of things might come to mind. What, what exactly, it's important to, to ask the question, what exactly is encouragement? What is biblical encouragement? Is encouragement merely being nice? As Christians, typically, we're probably known for being generally pretty nice people, right? But is that exactly, does that encompass all that is entailed in this word encouragement? Let's, let's look into this. You can see some verses there on your handout. Listen to what the Apostle Paul would say about encouragement from Colossians 1. He says, him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the goal. That's the goal of Paul's ministry, presenting people mature in Christ. And we could say that that's our goal even corporately as a, as a body, as the local church. We want to be encouraging one another, working towards being presented before God mature in Christ. Look at this next verse from Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but notice this, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so the day, that is even the judgment day, the day of the Lord's return, is very much in view when we consider this topic of encouragement. 
Now you can see on your handout, there's a, there's a quote here from the CHBC Church Covenant. Uh, I checked our covenant, it's actually the same word for word. So CHBC, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, many of you folks know these core seminars. This is basically adult Sunday school curriculum that we use from that church. But our covenant's the same here, so you can see it there. If, if you're a member here, you'll remember in members meetings, we actually recite this church covenant together each time we meet. Look at what it says. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Okay, so there's some, a couple of verses and, and a, a quote from our church covenant. Um, so we're working towards a definition now then. Here's a definition of encouragement. You can see it on, on your handout as well. Caring for someone else, usually including speaking biblical truth to them, with the goal of that person's growth in godliness. Now we could say usually, because very often encouragement will come in the form of, of a meal or something like that. Or maybe just, you know, asking someone to go out for a coffee and you want to, you want to just get together with them. But, but very often it's going to include speaking biblical truth to one another. So that's sort of going to be a key for us here. So this is a big responsibility then if you, if you consider uh, the implications of these verses, what we're looking at. Encouragement, Christian encouragement, is, is for the purpose of holiness or growth in godliness, as we saw in our definition there. So together, as believers, believe it or not, we forget this sometimes, we're in a life and death struggle. We're in a life and death struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our goal as believers, even mutually, is to help each other cross the finish line even well, right? We want to we finish the race well, and we want to encourage one another to, to finish the race well. So God is ultimately the one who, who preserves us and even causes us to persevere. But we, of course, have to recognize that the Lord uses means. The Lord uses means to help us in our preservation and perseverance, right? The perseverance of the saints. And one of those means, one of those key means is the body of Christ. So part of that fulfilling that calling includes confronting explicit sin. These are th th this is some of the stuff that Pastor Jared covered in the past couple weeks, right? Confronting a brother or sister um, who is even in grievous sin, right? That could potentially lead towards some type of corrective church discipline if there's no repentance, right? But that's, that's just part of life together. The Christian life involves more than that. And that's what we're going to be exploring this morning. So just a brief outline. You can see it in your handout. Some of the things we're going to look at here. First, we're going to examine what makes encouragement tough to do. After that, we're going to look at types of relationships that are required to make this happen. And then finally, some practical advice for how we can speak gospel-saturated encouragement into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So first of all, if you look at your handout, the challenge of encouragement. What makes this challenging? 
Well, first and foremost, our struggle is one of the heart. It involves those core desires that motivate us. Sort of, what is it that makes us tick as Christians? What is it that, that motivates our decisions and our actions? So many of you guys know this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. The prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The evil desires of the heart are what James points to, both as the cause of temptation, so that's 1.14, James 1.14, and the cause of conflict, James 4.1. So when we find that our brothers and sisters are making decisions or even lifestyle choices that don't seem to jive with their Christian profession, what, what is the proper response at that point? Well, it's important to remember, and many of you parents here will, will recognize this even from reading good books on parenting. For example, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Um, it's Ted Tripp, I think, that wrote that one, Shepherding a Child's Heart. He really stresses that the, the goal is not be merely behavior modification. It's actually heart change, right? So the same concept is very much in play here when we're considering this topic of encouragement, even when we're recognizing, um, you know, uh, not so good choices that we can all make, even as believers. We're not merely shooting for behavior modification. We're shooting for heart change. This is important because often in our relationships with other Christians, when we see things in their lives that are dishonoring to Christ, often we can just sort of think, oh, you just need to sort of change the way you're, you're acting even in, in an external fashion, if that makes sense. But biblical Christianity is all about heart change. It's internal change that is the goal. So the, here's just a, a few examples of things that we can all sort of run into and even perhaps think about each other. We could think, if only he wouldn't spend so much time around those people or we could think, if only she would spend her money differently. You think about some, some men, perhaps. If only he would get a, a better job so that he could spend more time with his family. Um, so in all of these things, we're going to be missing the mark if we're merely trying to, to encourage behavior modification and not internal heart change. So just a few things to consider then. Implications. Only God can change the heart. We are his instruments and so we get involved in others' lives. As we do that, we need to remember that prayer, first and foremost, is going to be the best tool. That's where you want to start by praying for that person that the Lord would be softening their heart and affecting change, even when they're sitting under the preached word and the, the, the ministry of the word in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. There are going to be appropriate times where, where external change actually just simply needs to happen, right? Um, 
you think about young men, if, if, if a young man is looking at pornography, he, he, there's, there's certain even practical external things that need to take place, right? So don't hear, hear me wrong, and, and, and those things need to be encouraged. But again, even in that case, right, heart change is what we're praying for and encouraging. Uh, second, when we encourage others, we must remember that our hearts are prone to wander too. So there's this uh, Galatians 6.1, it's interesting that immediately after Paul exhorts us to restore those caught in sin, he warns us against our own sort of pride and self-reliance, right? Galatians 6.1. So our hearts are darker and more capable of, of evil than we'll ever realize. In other words, it's very easy to look at someone caught in sin and think, oh, how could you possibly be there in that place, right? So th- th- there needs to be a measure of realism, and even in looking at your own heart and how capable we all are of sin, even being trapped in sin. Uh, last, the importance of the heart reminds us that our goal isn't to help others feel happy and fulfilled. So a person can achieve, many non-Christians, believe it or not, at certain times can actually achieve certain levels of happiness, right? We think that, sometimes we think that, you know, if you, if you don't know Christ, you must, must just be totally miserable. Well, not necessarily. Human happiness is not the end goal. Our goal for encouraging others is that they would be transformed in their desires to seek Christ above all and to find true and lasting satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ. So the first challenge we face then as we struggle and encourage our brothers and sisters is the deceitfulness of the heart. That's sort of very important needs to be remembered. And it's, we're talking about his or her heart, their heart, and our hearts as well. Now this is an interesting point here, moving on to point B, hollow and deceptive philosophies. Um, and I like these categories here. This is, this is coming from a book um, by a couple authors. Let me see here. This book is called How People Change. Anyone familiar with this book, How People Change? It's by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. Anyone heard of it? Amanda? Um, so these, these, these men, they put forward very helpful categories to consider regarding hollow and deceptive philosophy. So the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So consider this then. We are all philosophers, believe it or not. You've heard it said before that we're all theologians as well. Everyone has a theology. You're either a good theologian or a bad theologian, but you are a theologian, right? We could say the same thing about philosophy. We're all philosophers. In other words, we're all trying to answer the big questions of life. What is worth pursuing? What, What is the point of it all? What's worth living for? And to those big life questions, there are right answers and there are wrong answers. And we need to, of course, look to the scriptures for 
the right answers. We can e be easily deceived by worldly philosophies. And some of these philosophies, as we're going to see these categories, some of them are actually, on the face of them, they can actually appear to be, um, you know, maybe 80% correct or something like that. There's always half-truths mixed into these elemental spirits of the world, these worldly philosophies. Uh, so again, this is, this is coming from, this, this isn't original to me, this is coming from how people change. Uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. If this piques your interest, uh, check it out. The book is, I mean, I think it's about 150 pages or something like that. Um, could be a good resource to check out. So we're going to identify then, we're going to look at seven categories that these, these authors put forward as far as false philosophies to watch out for. You can see them there in your handout. The first one is formalism. Formalism, what's that? Well, it very often looks like this. I participate in all of the regular meetings at the church, all of the ministries, so that I feel like my life is under control. I'm, I'm at church every single Sunday. I'm at the prayer meeting. I'm, I, you know, there, there's something going on, you name it, I'm going to be there. But there's very little impact on my heart and how I live my life. I may become judgmental and impatient with those who don't go through the same motions that I do. Christianity is being in the right place and going through the right motions. So again, this could just sort of be merely external, right? There's many faithful churchgoers, believe it or not, many faithful churchgoers go to church three, four, five decades and actually still go to hell because they don't love Christ. That would be formalism. The second is formalism's close cousin, legalism. I live by rules, rules that I've created my, for myself and also rules that I create for others. I feel okay if I can keep my rules and I become arrogant and full of bitterness when others don't meet my standards, not the Bible standards, my standards. There is no joy in my life because there is no grace to be celebrated. That's legalism. So that would be very much sort of, I don't know if you folks remember, but a few weeks ago I talked about the word of God and how even as a pastor, the only authority I have is, in, is wrapped up in the word of God. Am I holding the line? If I'm going above the line, I'm preaching and teaching legalism. If I'm going below the line, I'm preaching and teaching licentiousness, right? So legalism then is going above the line of scripture. Yeah, 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 I know the Bible says that, but you've got to do this and this and this too. That would be legalism. Next, mysticism. I think all of these are actually, these are very helpful categories. This one is very prominent in our day. I think all of these are to various degrees, but mysticism is the incessant pursuit of an emotional experience with God. There's actually a church in town called Experience Church. And if you go there, the focus is going to be just that, right? It's, it's, it's always looking for that next emotional high. And if I'm not feeling that emotional high, well then I'm, I, I might start to think that actually God doesn't love me, right? 
you're constantly searching for that next sort of, you need to feel close to God and have sort of this, this, um, these emotional experiences. Again, not to say that the Christian life is not, we, we are emotional beings, right? Um, but if you're just searching for that next sort of shot of, it's almost like a shot of adrenaline, right? You go to church to get your next emotional high. Uh, activism is when I get excited about Christianity mainly as a way to fix this broken world. I base my relationship with God on how much I've done to alleviate poverty, but my own heart is far from him. Uh, then there's biblicism. So this isn't the bi- biblicism of me, myself, and my Bible. This is a slightly different connotation here. This would be reducing the gospel to a mastery of biblical knowledge and theology. I know my Bible inside and out, but I don't let it master me. And so I am, am, am impatient with those with lesser knowledge. I would say that in Reformed circles, this would be a big danger, this form of biblicism. Sixth is the therapeutic gospel. I may talk a lot about how Christ is the only way that healing and help to come to those who are hurting and yet fail to realize I've made Christ more of a therapist than a savior. I view the, the sin of people against each other as a greater problem than my own sin against God. So it's all sort of focused on the horizontal level and forgets about the vertical level. Jesus becomes your therapist. So I treat Christianity simply as a way to get problem-free and to have a happy life. That's the therapeutic gospel. The last one is socialism. Not socialism, not the political ideology, socialism. So socialism is all focused on the deep fellowship and friendships that I can find at church, and even those in and of themselves, believe it or not, can become an idol. Uh, They can become an idol when the body of Christ replaces Christ himself. So the gospel is reduced merely to a network of fulfilling Christian relationships. So these, believe it or not, are seven seven anti-gospel philosophies. And again, all of them based on half-truths. There's going to be good aspects in each one. So we need, believe it or not, to combat these, we actually need encouragement. Encouragement serves to correct faulty philosophies of what Christianity is all about. So as I just went through those, just try to think of yourself. Which false philosophy might you be most prone to sort of slip into? I'd say, if we're, again, the heart is deceitful. Um, if we're being honest with ourselves, all of us are going to be able to put our name under f- some of these categories. So what's the context for change then? We've seen the challenge, the, the, the battle of the desires of the heart, and we've recognized that we swim in a sea of worldly philosophies. So what's the context for change? Well, this is where it starts. James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's two things here that we need in a church to have a healthy culture of encouragement. It's a willingness to confess sin and a willingness to listen. A willingness to confess sin and a willingness 
to listen, even when others reveal their sin struggles to you. So nothing I'm saying in this class is going to be of any use to you if you're not willing to reveal your sin struggles to others and if you're not close enough to others to sort of let them in to your life. As Christians, we need to remember that we are weak and needy people. We do not have it all together, right? If we're just showing up on Sunday morning, putting on the happy face and just playing church, you might as well just stay home, right? We, we, we need to be in, in these relationships where we're confessing sin and we're, we're supporting and encouraging one another. So how do we cultivate this type of church culture then? Well, I would say, and I think you can see the term there yeah, on your handout, embrace the ministry of dependency. Again, I mean, we're living in a culture that is just so blatantly self-sufficient, right? It's that, I mean, think of the Home Depot model. You can do it. We can help. I guess even in that, it's, you know, Home Depot apparently is going to help you. But the, the, the spirit of the age would say, yeah, no, 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 I can do this on my own. I can do it. I'm strong, I'm able, I'm capable, I'm going to do it. That's antithetical to biblical Christianity. We, we need to lean on each other and share each other's struggles and burdens. So in other words, there's nothing godly about being too proud to confess your sins and just to con- continue to stumble along on your own. There's nothing godly about that. In fact, it's the devil who would have us isolate ourselves. And he would say, yeah, you're the only one that's struggling like this. So we need to be open and honest with each other. One of the kindest things we can do for those who are struggling and even considering joining this church is to make it clear that our church is full of people um, just like them, who are battling sin, who are, we're, you know, we're weak, needy, sinful people that need the grace of our Savior. So just consider this then. When someone bears their soul to you, you are called at that point to take them seriously. One thing that helps uh, is to refrain from offering trite solutions and to make it sound um, to make them sound, to, to make them feel like a complete fool for having the struggles that they have, right? So, so this would be sort of a trite response. You're struggling with depression? Just, well, just read your Bible and go get more sunshine. You'll be fine, right? Um, what may seem very simple to you, if a person is opening up to you, they, they might actually be revealing to you a lifelong battle. It could be something that they've been struggling with for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on their age. So you don't want to just sort of have quick, trite responses. Just a, a bit of an illustration to consider. When someone opens up to you with their struggles, um, it's as if they've just offered you a jewel. So that jewel might be rough and disfigured, but that's an opportunity for you to be able to speak into their lives and to be able to um, help polish that jewel so that it becomes a reflection of God's sanctifying work. 
It's a beautiful thing to consider. We're, we're all, as Christians, we're all trophies of grace that the Lord is making, right? To, to display his grace, but then he uses the means of the church in that work. So those are a few thoughts on the context of relationships that we need to build, relationships that are honest, and relationships that welcome struggling people. Well, how do we encourage struggling people then? And again, we're all struggling in, in different ways, fighting sin. So we're fighting the flesh, we're fighting hollow and deceptive philosophies. We're exhorted to encourage and instruct one another, even folks that are struggling. How do we do this? Well, first of all, um, and this is a really helpful verse, First Thessalonians 5.14, it really depends on the person. In other words, there is no sort of one-size-fits-all sort of formulaic thing that you go through, right? A 10-step process. It really depends on the person. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Yeah, you've got it on your handout there. Paul says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we can see three different sort of types of people there, can't we? You've got the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. So to have sort of just a simple sort of formulaic response to every single person is actually going to be wrong at that point. Um, we'd have to try to, try to figure out, um, is this person idle? Are they faint-hearted? Are they simply weak and in need of someone to help shoulder their burden? So whatever category they're in, um, I think there actually is, there, there, there are, there, so I'm saying that there, there ought not to be sort of this formulaic response on the one hand. On the other hand, these principles here that we see, they can be applied to each person, but then it's nuanced by um, trying to figure out where this person is at, right? So let's just go through these. First, we want to speak scripture to them. We want to speak scripture to each other. And again, this isn't simply throwing a verse at them. Um, often to speak the truth in a helpful way, we do need to get to know each other. Um, and now, now uh, let me say this too. I think I've said it um, in a previous class. When I'm starting to talk like this about really opening yourself up, you know, bearing your soul to another person, I'm talking about having may maybe even one or two people in the church that you're comfortable doing this with, right? So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that every single person in the pew here ought to, you know, you got to go airing out all your dirty laundry to every single person. That's not the case, right? This is, we're relational people, and there's levels of trust that need to be built and so on. But, and, and I would just say, if you, if you don't have one or two people in the church, really just uh, pray and ask the Lord for him to provide that even. So that's all in the context of, of these, um, these encouragements here. First of all, speak the scripture to them. Second, help them meditate on the good news. So you're speaking to them about different aspects of the gospel, and you're trying to get specific with the person's 
challenges and struggles. So, so, for example, the person wrestling with guilt or shame needs to be reminded that Christ has shouldered their blame so that he or she can enjoy reconciliation with the Father. For someone experiencing loneliness, at that point, we would want to remind that person that, that they, are, they have been adopted into God's family. God is their father, and they are part of the household of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. For the person fighting temptation and indwelling sin, you want to maybe remind that person that he or she has been made new and filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, um, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So we know these things as Christians, but often we can have a hard time sort of connecting the dots. It's almost like a, you know, connect the dot thing, like the children's picture there. You got, you're, you're trying to make gospel connections where sometimes folks, when, when we're left to ourselves in our own struggles, sometimes we just can't connect those dots. So you're helping people do that. Uh, third, identify evidences of grace in their lives. So this is recognizing whatever fruit the Holy Spirit is growing in them, and it's actually telling them about that. This is the thing about our own sort of self-perception. When we're being bombarded by the world, the flesh, and the devil, very often your, own, your perception of yourself can be very off, actually. And it can sometimes take a, a, a brother or sister coming alongside and saying, no, 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 there's actually clear evidences of grace in your life. You, know, you might not see it right now, but, but I can clearly see it. So let me point this out to you. Just consider the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians. I mean, it, it, with the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul had some very hard things. There's some very hard rebukes. The Corinthians were living in some pretty... Um, nasty sin, some of them. And yet he opened up his letter like this, 1 Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So that's the third one there. Identifying evidences of grace in people's lives. So we're going to close now. On the back of your handout, you can see three case studies. Let's just look at these. So these are, these are sort of hypothetical, but they're helpful here. Let, let, we can start with Sue. Sue will not remove herself from the path of temptation. She has found that she's very tempted by the things of the world, and it's expressed in wa- watching a particular TV show that when she watches this show, it really seems to stir up discontentment in her life for where the Lord has her in life. She's been counseled that perhaps watching this TV show is not very helpful for her soul. But she really, really likes it, and she really enjoys talking about the latest episode the next day at work with her coworkers. So this, this TV show continues to play a, a destructive role in her life that she is not realizing. While she confesses that she, show, 
that the show does regularly lead her to be sinfully discontent, she won't stop watching it. So in other words, she's idle at this point. Again, going back to that First Thessalonians 5 verse, Sue would be idle. She's apathetic about her soul. So what's the proper response there? Where is the gap, this sort of gospel gap in Sue's understanding of the gospel? Well, I would suggest with this one, Sue probably needs to remind her of what true biblical repentance looks like. She's, she's forgotten or misunderstood what repentance is. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 2, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So does Sue understand what repentance truly looks like for a believer? Is she taking seriously the words of Christ who says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off? So what do you say to Sue then? Will you talk with her about the differences between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow of 2 Corinthians 7? If a person is living in repetitive, consistent sin and there's, there seems to be worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow, that can start to become um, an issue. So warn her of the consequences of this sin in her life. Positively encourage her in the joy and contentment that comes from pursuing the things of the Lord. Knowing, um, and from knowing herself to be someone who has not deserved God's love, but has received it because of his grace. That's Romans 5, verse 8. So that's an example of, of trying to encourage someone and challenge someone who is idle. What about the faint-hearted? Think about Joe. So Joe's in his late 20s, and he's still trying to figure out what to do with his life. He, he's discouraged because he seems to be just sort of stuck in a dead-end job. He doesn't find himself particularly useful at church. He would like to get married, sort of, but he doesn't know where to start, and he knows that he seems to be a long way off from that possibility. So he's struggling with what God's purposes are for his life. Joe actually, believe it or not, feels like giving up whatever that might mean. That might sound dramatic to him. He, he's not even sure exactly what that means, but he, he, he feels like giving up. He rarely serves others. He says he would like to, but he's not sure he has to contribute to anything. When Joe sees the elders of the church, he thinks that they're super-duper Christians, and he's just a nobody. Nobody really cares or knows him. So where's the gap in Joe's understanding of the gospel at this point? Well, he's, he's considering his worth as directly related to his um, apparent productivity or growth as a Christian. And that's resulted in despondency. So what we would want to say to Joe then is remind him that his worth before God is grounded in Christ's finished work not his own. From that place of security, he can now work as unto the Lord. <clears throat> That's Colossians 3.23. This, this, this is one of the Holland deceptive philosophies I didn't talk about. Uh, it's not in that book there, but even the, the utilitarianism of our day, right? 
your perceived value or worth as a human being is attached to your perceived usefulness or productivity in the society. That's even why things like abortion and euthanasia are becoming more common in our society because those two things are attached. It's a very utilitarian philosophy. You're not seemingly productive, not seemingly useful. I guess you're not very valuable. Our value is, needs to be and is embedded in our security in Christ, our acceptance before the Father, and out of that, you're then energized and motivated even to work as unto the Lord. Uh, last one, help the weak. So who is weak? Well, in a sense, we all are. I, I sort of mentioned that earlier. But there are some in our midst who are weak in particular ways and, and maybe even in, in particularly entrenched ways and it makes some folks very uh, spiritually vulnerable. This might come through certain circumstances in life that make it difficult for that person to know God's love and even to trust God. So let's take Max. He's our last case study here. Max has been diagnosed with clinical depression. He's unable to be as productive as he once was, and he sorely misses those days. He struggles mightily with his relationship with God now that many of the emotions of, the emotions of faith um, he once counted on are few and far between. So even those emotional highs, as it were, he doesn't seem to really get those much anymore. So through work with his pastor, he's come to recognize some of the spiritual roots of his problem. But his mind is more susceptible to that downward spiral of depression. And there's a physical side to his condition that is hard to escape. So in this situation, it's not always necessary. But in this case, his doctor is actually helping him on the physical side of things with medication. Which is, it just needs to be said, there is 100% a time and a place for that. And that can be a good and beautiful thing from the Lord. Right? So he's helped by medication. Yet Max is discouraged and downhearted in so many ways. So we could say that according to 1 Thessalonians 5, Max is weak. He's weak in that sense. So what, are, what might be some possible uh, gospel gaps in Max's understanding of the gospel? Um, so let's consider how he is weak. He may be weak in faith, his present emotions feel like they will last forever, and so God's promises seem so distant as to appear non-existent. So one of the key things here is we want to be helping Max to learn to trust God more than himself. Trust God more than himself. Or perhaps there's going to be this constant reminder that they are Christians, there are Christians in this life who love and whose love is rooted in something much more secure than their own lovability. And that could be a thing too. A person might not feel lovable, right? Well, yeah, but God loves the unlovable. And, and we're all unlovable to various degrees, <laughs> right? That's the beautiful work that God does. So what are some of the things that we could say to encourage Max? Well, we want to share with him the gospel of hope. Help him to see how his sufferings are producing perseverance, character, and ultimately hope. Remind him of the reasons he has to trust the goodness of God, even as he questions why he is struggling 
in this way. And I would say, especially for folks in this category who are weak, we can't be content to simply dispense truth at people, sort of like a vending machine or something, and then just think that your job is done. Sometimes it's just going to be sitting quietly with a person like that, maybe even not even speaking very much, just being present with them while they suffer. Other times we'll need to pray for them to perhaps meet physical needs to provide fellowship. So we shouldn't only speak the truth, but also find ways to serve. Well, to close, and I'm going long again. First Thessalonians 5, 14 ends with a be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. So whether it's someone who is physically weak, someone who is frustratingly obstinate, someone who thinks that they're doing a great job and doesn't need your encouragement. Very often that can be the place too, right? A person is just feeling pretty fine, pretty all right. Well, our posture is always one of patience. You can see it there. Uh, Be patient with them all. So our job then is never to condemn, never to shame someone for their seemingly slow growth. True patience comes from knowing how patient our Heavenly Father has been with us. And it really does come back to this. It's reminding yourself of your Heavenly Father's patience. We love because he first loved us. And that's how we can persevere in encouraging one another. So because of that, may we labor to present each other mature in Christ, even as we safeguard unity in holiness through encouragement. Let me close. Heavenly Father, this is a a good and fruitful and helpful topic to consider this morning. Father, there are many things here, even just recognizing just the different um, struggles and habits and sins and mindsets that we can find ourselves in. Father, whether it's the deceitfulness of our own hearts, uh, believing half-truths, worldly philosophies, um, even learning and growing and being able to open up to one another and, and encourage, encourage one another along the way. Father, help, we need your help in all these things. We need uh, our eyes fixed on Christ. Father, help us even to grow in our ability to just figure out where a person is at. Are they idle? Are they faint-hearted? Are they weak? Um, so, Father, help us here, even at this church, to grow uh, in these things for the unity of this body and for your glory. And Father, help us uh, now. Please prepare our hearts and our minds even as we prepare uh, for the main service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was, I was, I was going to say, as always, please, you got questions, feel free to come up and talk to me.